I've titled the message, God with us. God with us. Anytime you consider prophetic literature, anytime you consider um, the prophets, whether minor or major prophets in the Old Testament, the minor prophets are the small books, the major prophets are the big books. They're equally as inspired, they're equally as important, but nevertheless, we call the major prophets books like Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Daniel, Ezekiel. Those are the major prophets, and then the minor prophets are the 12 smaller ones that come uh, after that. But whenever you consider these prophets in the Old Testament, one of the most helpful, probably the most helpful tool for interpretation that you should keep in mind is what uh, scholars call the near-far view. Near-far. Near-far view. The idea is that there is a near fulfillment in the time of the prophets, but there's also a far away fulfillment of the prophecy that is given. That is often the case, and that is the case in today's text. We're not necessarily considering all of chapter 7, but a few comments on it will be somewhat helpful, and then we'll jump into Matthew chapter 1. But what we find in chapter 7 is that uh, times are bad. Times in Israel are bad. It is not a good situation. We see immediately in uh, the first few verses, it came to pass in the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, the son of Uzziah, the king of Judah, that Rezin, king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Remaliah, kings of Israel, went up to Jerusalem to make war against it. So there's this war coming up against Jerusalem, and that includes not just the neighbors, but also people that should be friends. So the Jerusalem is under siege. There is a war coming, and these are dark days. That's why it says in verse 2 at the end, So his heart and the hearts of his people were moved as the trees of the woods and moved with the wind. So their, their hearts are, are being um, shaken like a tree that's shaking in the wind. These people are terrified. These are dark times. Then the Lord said to Isaiah, go out now and meet Ahaz and Shear Jeshub, your son, at the end of the aqueduct from the upper pool on the highway to the fuller's field and say to him, take heed, be quiet, do not fear. So Isaiah is being sent to, to, with his message. Don't be afraid, guys. I know things are bad. I know they're storming your city and they've got their armies all around us. But I want you, the prophet, to go and speak to these people, in particular with a message saying, don't be afraid. You don't have to fear. And then he calls them a name. These are stubs. These two stubs of smoking firebrands. Don't be afraid of these people. For the fierce anger of Rezin and Syria and the son of Remaliah, because Syria, Ephraim, and the son of Remaliah have plotted evil against you, saying, let us go up against Judah and trouble it. Let us make a gap in its wall. That's how we're going to get in. We're going to, we'll just dig a hole through the wall, and then that's how we'll invade. Uh, we'll go up against them and set a king over them. We'll, we'll do a, an overthrow. Uh, talking the other day or yesterday with uh, some friends about ways of um, taking over churches. There was a Handel's Messiah on uh, Friday night at Central Prez, which is approximately two blocks from here. And it, it was taken over a few years back, maybe 10 or 15 years ago. They had, I'm told, I haven't gotten the full scoop on it, but I, I heard they had like an atheist pastor for a long time and they had like eight people in the church. And um, about 40 or so people got it in their minds to take over the church. And so they came in and they said, uh, we're in charge now. And then they brought in a pastor who believes that Jesus is real. And um, they did this, this overthrow, basically, and now they're doing a, a very lovely Handel's Messiah concert uh, about once a year. And there's like 500 people there. And it is a, a, a now a Christian context instead of a, a synagogue of Satan. So um, 
whenever I see that sort of thing, I'm like, hmm, wow. I wonder if there's like a liberal Baptist church we could take over or uh, something like that. So um, there are diff- you have to you know, work the system different ways depending on what the situation is and the bylaws and the methods of church government. But what is being described here in Isaiah 7 is a, a way in which they could do an overthrow. We'll dig a hole in the wall, we'll, we'll creep through, and then we will set a king over them, the son of Tabal. We'll put our guy in and he'll be the one in charge and that's how we'll take over. Thus says the Lord God, it shall not stand, nor shall it come to pass. For the head of Syria is Damascus, the head of Damascus is reason. Within 65 years, Ephraim will be broken so that it will not be a people. The head of Ephraim is Samaria, the head of Samaria is Remaliah's son. If you will not believe, surely you shall not be established. So the word of the Lord is given and saying, you need to believe this. If you, if you don't believe, then this is, um, will not be established. Moreover, the, the Lord spoke again to Ahaz saying, ask a sign for yourself. He's saying, I want to prove to you that I'm God and I'm in charge and the things that I'm saying will happen. So ask me, ask me for a sign and I'll give you a sign. I know we tend to think in terms of signs are bad because that's like Joshua and the fleece and that's showing unbelief. So we shouldn't do that. Well, whether or not we should or shouldn't is not the point. God told him to ask for a sign. Ask me something and I'll prove it to you. Ask it either in the depth or in the height above. You want a sign written on the ground? You want something? You want to look out into the the water and see a message written? You want to look up into the sky and see writing in the clouds? Ask me and I I will give you a sign. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, nor will I test the Lord. He thinks he's being holy. He thinks he's being spiritual. I'm going to be more spiritual than God by refusing his offer. Verse 13, then he said, hear now, O house of David, is it a small thing for you to weary men? But will you weary my God also? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and you shall call his name Emmanuel. There is uh, obviously then a significant gap that we're about to jump, and that significant gap is hundreds of years into the New Testament. There is something taking place there in the immediate context, but we're not terribly concerned with that today. The sign that is given to redeem the house of David, which is described here in Isaiah 7, that's coming, and we read about it in Matthew 1. So let's go ahead and turn over there, Matthew chapter 1. But you might want to, no, you don't, you don't need to keep your finger in Isaiah 7. Uh, starting in verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. After his mother Mary was betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Spirit. Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man and not wanting to make her a public example, was minded to put her away secretly. But while he thought about these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, Do not be afraid to take to you, Mary, your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. And she shall bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. Hooray, definite atonement. Verse 22. 
So all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet through, spoken by the Lord through the prophet saying, behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. Then Joseph being aroused from his sleep, did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took him, took to him his wife and did not know her till her time, the time it had been that she brought forth her firstborn son and called his name Jesus. So this prophecy, this prophecy, behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. This virgin, which we know to be Mary, is not just any virgin. It is the virgin shall be with child. It is a young woman who is truly a virgin. We believe in what we call the virgin conception. We reject what is known as the immaculate conception. The immaculate conception is a Catholic doctrine. I believe, if I get it right, that it, it was actually that Mary was conceived in a virgin conception. That's the immaculate conception. We don't believe in that. We believe in the virgin conception that um, Jesus was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit. And while, yes, the text says that Joseph did not know her till she had brought forth her firstborn son, and therefore it is truly a virgin birth, the fact that it's a virgin birth is not the most important thing. What is most important is, is that it is a virgin conception. And this by the power of the Holy Spirit. This is the sign that the Lord has said he will give. The Lord himself shall give you a sign. So, let's back it down from any sort of academic stuff and just think in terms of the random visitor who wants to attend a church in New York City around Christmas time. If that happens to describe you, I'm not sure if there's any people in that category, but if you stumbled in here and you're like, oh, it would be nice to go to church since it's around Christmas time, I'll just ask you, have you ever asked the Lord for a sign? Have you ever asked the Lord for a sign that goes something like this? God, if you're real, please prove yourself. Please give me a sign. Please show yourself to me. Well, here's a sign. It's a giant billboard. It's bigger than any sign you would find in Times Square. The Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin shall conceive and bear a son. You might ask, well, do you guys actually believe that? We say, yes, we do actually believe that. We do believe that Jesus did not have a biological father. It was not Joseph or anyone else that he was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit in the womb of the Virgin Mary. Now, you might wonder, on the other side of the aisle, away from the first-time visitor who's not familiar with these things, you might be like, well, Andy, I've been to church every Sunday for the last two years here at PBC, but I've always wondered why was it important that it be a virgin birth, a virgin conception. Why does, why does that matter? Well, the reason that it matters is it has to do with the imputation of Adam's sin. We spoke about this a little bit last week. But the issue is that this sin nature 
that is passed down is passed down through Adam. And so what this means is Jesus has to be born without that lineage. He has to be born without a father. There's, no, there's never been anybody else born without a father. It's never happened. So Jesus, in order to not have the imputation of Adam's sin, has to, uh, be, has to swerve that process. He has to go around that and not have this descendants, this, this biological ancestry being of Adam's seed. Um, behold, a virgin shall conceive, shall be with child, and shall bear a son. They shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. The reason for this whole thing in the first place is because humanity has been estranged from God. Humanity is estranged from God, and the solution that is given is the incarnation of the Son of God. There is a term which I want you to know because it is wonderful and it is extra Calvinisticum. Raise your hand if you've ever heard of extra Calvinisticum before. <laughs> there is a very small child in the back raising his hand. <laughs> so extra Calvinisticum is the idea that in the incarnation um, it was something extra that was added, or Calvin's doctrine of the beyond. That, that is what I understand it to be um, referring to. So let's read the notes from Theopedia. Um, Theopedia says, uh, The extra-Calvinisticum teaches that the eternal Son of God, even after the incarnation, was united to the human nature to form one person, but not restricted to the flesh. The term was created by Lutheran theologians after hearing the Reformed theologians argue that the Son's existence beyond the flesh did not pose a problem for the unity of the divine and human natures. Now, if that didn't make any sense to you, just keep listening and we will unpack it a little bit. So even though Jesus is incarnate, he is um, in flesh, he has a body now, and he's laying in a cradle as a baby, he continues to maintain his full deity. He still is infinite in power. He still is the eternal divine son of God. And where it starts to get a little mind-blowing, if that wasn't mind-blowing, is he, he still is omnipresent, even though he has a body, and his body is right there. It gets better. He is still seated at the right hand of the Father, even though his body is right there. He is still upholding the universe by the word of his power, even though he can't talk and he's a baby. So in his incarnation, when he takes on flesh and dwells among us, he's still in heaven, even though he is with us. In his incarnation, his divine essence remains and is not erased, but rather maintains his divine essence, but adds humanity to it. So it's helpful to have two hands for that. So you've got your divine essence, and then you're human, and then they're 
brought together, but the divine essence is maintained. It is not um, destroyed or removed or discarded. His divine essence is not restricted to his human nature. How could a human body contain all of the glory of the infinite God? Think about the brightness of the sun, the literal sun that hangs on nothing in the sky or in space. And it's suspended by nothing but the good pleasure of God's will. The energy that radiates out from the sun cannot be contained by putting it in a box. Let's say you had a box in your apartment and you brought your box here to church and you're like, hey, I'm going to put the sun in this box. And I would say, what kind of box do you have? And you say, well, I have a cardboard box. I ordered it on Amazon and I'm going to take a soup spoon. I'm going to get a ladle and I'm going to scoop up some of that. What is it? Um, uh, Hydrogen and helium. Burning hydrogen and helium, and it's a whole bunch of degrees, and I'm going to get my soup spoon, and hopefully it's not going to melt, and I'm going to scoop, and I'm going to pour the sun into my box. How is that going to work? How is that box going to retain or contain that? Well, it's not. It's going to burn it up. It's going to go straight through it, and it's going to burn straight through the floor. And it's going to like roll around as some kind of lava once it hits stuff that won't burn anymore. This cannot be contained. The box cannot contain that burning radiance of that helium and hydrogen, I think I was found that it is. And so a human body does not contain the fullness of the divine essence. Yes, Jesus veils his deity in his humanity, but the rest of his divine essence, even in a very poor way of explaining it, the rest of his divine essence, he's still fully divine and he is still truly seated in heaven and he is ruling and reigning. And this little operation we got going on in Israel with this human body, well, that's not containing it. That's not limiting it. The illustration that was given that I read about um, is that I think... Some theologian, it wasn't, yeah, it was a theologian speaking about um, uh, J.R.R. Tolkien. And he said that, bearing in mind this is a bad illustration, but it's, it's, it's the best I got right now. And that is that um, how could Tolkien be both in Oxford and in this story? Well, he writes himself into the story. So he's in the story, but he's also in Oxford. <coughs> So, not a perfect illustration, but nevertheless, Jesus is in heaven at the right hand of the Father, and he is in this body, in a cradle, in this manger. This is difficult to wrap our minds around, but what this means is that um, when Jesus looks at the thief on the cross and he says, today you will be with me in paradise, that's how that works. Because he's still in heaven. And so what this also means is that this uh, Christmas season, when we sing a bunch of Christmas songs that I frankly don't really like very much, um, a lot of them have really bad theology, and that we add an extra layer of complexity to trying to be careful how we say this. When we say in his incarnation, well, what happened exactly? So we call it the mystery of the incarnation. Okay, he lays aside heaven's glory, that's true. 
But he didn't leave heaven. He's still in heaven. Even while he's in this cradle. I have another couple of quotes. I might save them for the end. I'll read one, uh, one page now and another page later. Uh, John Calvin wrote, The Son of God descended from heaven in such a way that without leaving heaven, he willed to be born in the virgin's womb, to go about the earth, and to hang upon the cross. Yet he continuously filled the world, even as he had done from the beginning. The basic idea involved in this doctrine didn't originate with Calvin. In fact, it goes to the fourth century with Athanasius. The word was not hedged in by his body. Hence my son and box illustration. Nor did his presence in the body prevent his being present elsewhere as well. When he moved, his body did not cease also to direct the universe by his mind and might. At one and the same time, this is the wonder. As man, he was living a human life. And as the word, he was sustaining the life of the universe. And as son, he was in constant union with the father. This author goes on, note that Athanasius emphasizes not merely the son of God's existence beyond the flesh of his human body, but his role as the sustainer and director of the universe. In Calvin's sermons and commentaries, he emphasizes not merely the spatial character of the extra, the beyond, beyond, but its implication for Christ's governance of the world and mediatorship over the angels. The important thing is not omnipresence per se, but that the son of God remains fully divine. So if you don't think you learned stuff in church, well, you learned something today. Extra Calvinisticum. The necessity of the incarnation, the necessity that Jesus would come into the world, this is because humanity has been estranged from God The only solution to this estrangement, the only solution to this division, this fracture in this relationship between God and man is that God would come down, that he would dwell among us, that he would redeem us, that he would save us, that he would reconcile us to himself. We spoke about this last week. We'll speak about it again. Emmanuel, God with us. God was with Adam and Eve in the garden and the presence and the communion and the fellowship was unlike anything that we have ever experienced. But when Adam and Eve rebelled, and Adam in particular, when he rebelled against God, it fractured and broke that relationship. And now humanity has been running from God ever since. The solution to that estrangement, the solution to that fracturing and breaking and destroying of that relationship is that God would come down, that God would come after his people, that he would pursue them in love and save them. So Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, was incarnate, that he took on flesh, he took on a body, and he dwelt among us. He walked with us. Now, truly, this message this Christmas season is that God is with us, that God is with us in our darkest hour. Yes, the reason why he came is because of Adam and Eve's sin and their rebellion against him, and that is the darkest of all hours. But don't think that just because that happened and that God was with them, that God isn't with you in your current darkest 
ours. It is true that God draws near to us in times of great hardship, great suffering. I believe it's in the book of Exodus. The Bible says that the Lord saw the affliction of the children of Israel. He saw what they were suffering under the hand of the Egyptians. And then it says, and the Lord knew. This is the essence of this God being with us. The Lord knows what you are going through. And he draws near to his children. But in order for him to draw near to his children in their times of suffering, he has to come into the world in the first place. He has to take on flesh. He has to be incarnate. He has to live and die and go to the, uh, live, go to the cross, die, and then rise again. If he doesn't do that, there is no redemption. If he doesn't do that, he is not drawing near to you. In order for him to be with us, for him to be Emmanuel, God with us, for him to draw near to us, it is necessary that he come down. It is necessary that he utters those words on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, yes, in this extra Calvinisticum, he is still in heaven. He's still with the Father in heaven. But here, his human nature His true human mind is experiencing this distance, this separation, this opposite of God with us. It is feeling as though God is far from me, as if God has turned his back on me. And so in order for God to be with us, he must experience God. He must experience God being far from him. And he has, and he has done this. He has lived this sin-cursed, uh, walked this sin-cursed earth, yet living a sinless life in the process. And then he has gone to the cross and died and experienced that, that separation. His body goes into the grave, yet he is still in heaven. And he is in chill. And then he rises in victory. In order for God to be with us, this must take place. Verse 22 of Matthew 1. So all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Behold, The virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. This immediate context in Matthew chapter 1, you've got these Israelites, Jewish people, and they don't necessarily feel like God is really with them. This is coming after 400 years of silence from the prophets. It's in a situation where they've been invaded by the Romans. They're being occupied by the Romans. It's a similar situation as uh, Isaiah 7. They're, except in Matthew 1, they've already been conquered. Isaiah 7, it's this prophecy that it's going to happen. So times are dark. Times are hard. Temptation is to feel as though God has forgotten them. There hasn't been a word from the Lord. There haven't been prophets in Israel in a very long time. But this message that is breaking forth into the darkness, (coughs) speaking out into this silence, is that God is with us. 
And this little baby that is going to be born is actually God in the flesh. Now, this is a shocking thing when Joseph hears this message. Joseph, being aroused from his sleep, did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took to him his wife. And he did not know her till time had the, the time had brought forth, till she had brought forth her firstborn son. We'll talk about the birth more specifically in future messages, but we see here in Isaiah 7:14 this prophecy that this virgin shall conceive and bear a son. It is necessary to have this sign to prove the truthfulness of the message, to prove that this child born is not just any child, but it is Emmanuel. It is God with us. It is divine. He is divine, and we know this because this is a miraculous conception, a miraculous birth. It's different from all the others. There have been a multitude, millions, billions of babies born, but this one is unlike all of the rest. He is God. In the flesh, he is God with us. Now, my last thing to say on this extra Calvinisticum, beyond all of this, more basically, the extra Calvinisticum can help us marvel afresh at the wonder of what we celebrate each Christmas. Just consider it. The one in the manger is both swaddled tightly, just as real as baby Andrew or any of the other babies that are in the room. Like he's right there, swaddled tightly, yet filling the heavens. Clinging to his mother, Much the same way that we had the babysitter the other night while we went to go see Handel's Messiah, and um, this child would not sleep. So we come home, and he's sitting up, glad to see us. We walk in at 10.30 p.m., and he's like, oh, hey, my people. <laughs> Pick him up, and he doesn't want to be let down. He's clinging to you like a koala on a tree. <laughs> Baby Jesus clung to, to Mary. Clinging to his mother, yet holding every atom in place. Sustaining the universe, even though he's right there, a baby. The one in the manger is crying for comfort, yet sustaining the stars. How can this be? He is sleeping among the donkeys, yet he is adored by the angels. Do you know how many angels there are? There's a lot. (laughs) A whole, whole bunch. The numbers that are given to tell us how many of the angels that there are, it, it uses language like uh, multitudes of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, or, or myriads and myriads and thousands and thousands, to give us the impression that this is a number that's so high that we can't even count it. But these angels 
who they know, they know who Jesus is. They know who God is. They, they've got their priorities straight because these are the, the angels that haven't rebelled. They know this whole thing is about the triune God, in particular, the Son of God coming into the world. They might not get it, in an, they definitely don't get it in an experiential way, but they see it, they see it rolling out. They see these plans taking place. They see it happening. And they're looking on in wonder and amazement as these steps are being taken. So you see Jesus sleeping among the donkeys, yet adored by the angels. The author concludes, it certainly gives new meaning to the words that we sing, veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Hail, the incarnate deity. And so we consider today God with us. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you that Jesus came into this world. And he was born of a virgin. That he lived among us, yet he retained his full deity and continued to uphold the stars even while laying in a manger. That the fullness of his divine essence was not constricted or destroyed by his humanity, but that it continued. We thank you for this wonder that God is truly with us. That he is with us in times of great hardship and times of great suffering and great unknowns. And he has done this in order to save us from our sins. That we could draw near to God. And so he comes into our world. Lord, I thank you for this Christmas season, this holiday season, where we have a society-wide celebration. Even if the vast majority of people don't truly know Christ, we thank you that we see things all over the city that point to Jesus. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.